Welcome to Video Village. I'm Mihir Shah, and today we are talking about not one but two Netflix thriller movies. We're talking about Leave the World Behind and David Fincher's The Killer. Let's jump into it. Hope everyone's having a good holiday season. Um, like I said on the Golden Globes episode, I'm um, going to be trying to pump out a handful of episodes here during the holidays and um, really focusing on like keeping them keeping them short, short and sweet. So uh, ideally this one is around 30 minutes, maybe a little longer. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to make things digestible and really just focus on pumping out episodes on all the different movies that are available to watch this holiday season as we prepare to jump into awards season. That will be kicking off on January 7th with the Golden Globes. So uh, I'm really excited to talk about these two movies. I don't think we're going to be seeing either of these two movies at the Oscars or anything like that. There's a chance that we'll see maybe something like The Killer in, um, you know, like a cinematography or a visual effects category. But otherwise, you know, these aren't these aren't like the most popular movies of the year, uh, but certainly are being talked about. I think it's interesting because these are both movies that are labeled as thrillers, but when you watch either of these movies, you walk away kind of confused and kind of like, that that wasn't a thriller, that's not what I signed up for. Um, and so I, I find them both fascinating to kind of discuss. Let's talk about Leave the World Behind first. We'll take a quick break and then we'll jump into the killer. So Leave the World Behind, uh, very popular on Netflix. It was number one on Netflix for about a week uh, at the start of December. Um, Leave the World Behind, based on a book directed by Sam Esmail, who is most well-known for the TV series Mr. Robot as the the creator of that show. Um, This movie has a pretty awesome cast. It stars uh, Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, Ethan Hawke, and Kevin Bacon, uh, and Myhala. Um, Just starting from the top, Julia Roberts, it's, she's Julia Roberts. Pretty much like any movie she's attached to, it's gonna it's gonna have a buzz around it. People are gonna watch it. Um, Mahershala Ali has definitely kind of emerged as one of the best actors in Hollywood uh, from the last ten years. He has already won not one but two Oscars for Moonlight, Best Supporting Actor, and Green Book, Best Supporting Actor. He, he's great. Everything he's in is good. I, I first saw him in, in House of Cards. He played. Uh, Remy, I think that that was his character's name. Um, he was like a political, I don't know, everyone in that show was like some some sort of random political person. But he was like really, really great on screen um, and really, really stuck out. And then, of course, was in Moonlight and he was in the Hunger Games movies and, and particularly in the Mockingjay movies. He was like one of those head soldiers um, for the, the revolution or the rebellion. Also, shout out the Hunger Games. I'm, I'm rewatching those movies with my family. Just killer. Check them out. Um, Ethan Hawke is, uh, he's kind of like a Hollywood staple. He's been around forever. He was, I think one of his first big roles was uh, Dead Poet Society, starring Robin Williams. He played one of the students in that movie. And he's, he's basically just been like a bedrock of Hollywood since. Not really like a A-list household name, but he's been in everything. Um, he was in The Black Phone last year which was a, I guess, horror thriller movie that came out. Um, one of the, his biggest movies was Boyhood, which came out uh, a little over 10 years ago, and he played the father in that film. He's just in, he's in a ton of stuff. His daughter, Maya Hawk 
is uh, now also an actress. She was most recently in Maestro, um, and she's also probably most notably in the Stranger Things. The Stranger Things, wow. She's in Stranger Things, um, and she plays, I think her character's name is Robin. Uh, she's kind of like Steve's friend slash foe love interest in season three. Um, anyway, uh, he's in this movie, and Kevin Bacon shows up for like a scene and a half. Uh, Kevin Bacon of Footloose and, I don't know, Kevin Bacon fame. He's great. Um, and then Myhala, who is a new actress on the scene. She was in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies last year, a movie I didn't, never saw. But uh, this is the first thing I think I've really seen her in. She's also in a uh, Black Mirror episode that came out this year. So, pretty big cast. Um, the movie, if... And this is this is going to be like a overall conversation overall review of the movie but I, I will be talking about it there will be spoilers so if you haven't seen the movie and you do care about spoilers hop off now um or just jump to the killer there's timestamps in the description the overall movie i think basically the, okay, so the premise is like this family randomly decides to go on a vacation uh to law was it long island the hamptons basically somewhere east of new york where they live and um very quickly it becomes clear that some weird stuff is happening, and uh, about halfway through, you realize the apocalypse basically is is upon us in some form. the The whole thing about this movie is that nothing's really explained. There's a actually like pretty lengthy explanation of what probably is going on here, given by Mahershala Ali's character about halfway through the movie, um, and he has he has a theory, and it's kind of confirmed halfway through. And so he basically talks about how he thinks that this is like foreign governments uh, trying to start a civil war within America by sowing chaos and fear and shutting down all the systems that we know and understand. Um, But basically, I think this movie is a slow burn thriller that is more so about the ideas of how we would respond in these situations as a society rather than uh, you know, giving us a cut and dry explanation and a resolution by the end of the film. It's more so meant to, I think, provoke conversation and questions. Um, and it certainly does that. Uh, I, I think parts of the slow burn aspect were really frustrating, not because like they weren't intriguing or anything. I think, I think I was just not attached to either the characters or the story at many times in this movie, which is a frustrating place to be when you are halfway through a movie and don't really know why you're watching. A lot of the ideas in the movie are interesting, but the overall premise of the movie, I believe, is is just like, it, it, I think it thinks it's smarter than it is, and then it really is. Um, there's some really cool set pieces that I wanted to shout out. So you have this scene with the oil tanker <clears throat> where the family's on the beach, and they see a ship in the distance, and they're like, oh, a cool ship. There must be a port nearby. And as this ship gets closer and closer, they realize it's some sort of oil tanker and that it is not stopping. And the family waits way too long to sort of get all their stuff up and get moving. And as soon as they start moving, the oil tanker starts to crash into the beach. Um, And it's the first instance of them seeing something really weird where basically uh, technology has started to run aground and it seems like no one's at the wheel of society. So uh, they go back home. I guess like before this, there's <clears throat> they they see, I think it's like one or two deer, in the in the backyard. The deer are like the creepiest part of this movie, probably. Um, and 
the deer sort of show up again and again as some sort of motif and they sort of write it off as like just deer but this one character the youngest daughter is the one who's really kind of paying attention to the deer she chases them into the woods to try to understand more about why there's so many she's the one who actually sees that there's a lot of deer the family doesn't even realize that there's like hundreds of deer at one point in their backyard just looking at them um and i i find i found that to be like the most intriguing part of the movie a bit frustrating that they never explain it but i think that it's really meant to be a symbol of uh humans relationship to nature and how quickly things can change in nature when things go wrong um so you know the adults don't really end up caring too much about what the deer are doing until uh, it seems like the deer are a direct threat to them at the very end of the movie when uh, Julia Roberts' character and Mahala's character are like face-to-face with 100, 100 deer in the woods. Um, I think the most fascinating p- part of that whole thing is really that the youngest character, the daughter, who is seemingly kind of like over all the apocalypse stuff uh, and really just wants to like watch Friends, uh, is the most in tune with nature in this movie. The youngest daughter is like, hey, we should be paying attention to what nature is telling us. And the rest of the family just kind of writes her off. I think that's on purpose. I think the filmmaker is trying to be like, or I guess like the story, uh, I should say the author of the book, is trying to say that, hey, young people uh, care about climate change. They care about what nature is trying to tell us and we aren't listening. And by the end of the movie, the youngest daughter is basically jaded because no one's listening to her about what she's seeing. And so she, at the end of the movie, when she goes into the bunker, uh, instead of really caring about what's actually going on in the world, she is happily uh, watching the finale of Friends. And I think that goes to show that yeah, basically the they're saying that young people are becoming jaded because they think that it's hopeless to try to care and try to uh, fix what's at hand because no one's listening to them. I think that's like pretty clear, pretty on the nose here. Um, fairly effective as an ending, but again, like I don't think it salvages the actual story of the movie. I think it's just like something to walk away from and like talk about. Which that's what this movie is. Like one thing I haven't talked about yet is that the uh, executive producers producers of this movie are Barack and Michelle Obama. Higher Ground Productions is their production company that put out a lot of movies this year, including this one. Um, and yeah, it's clearly like a message of like, hey, we should be paying attention to what's going on around us and each of us have a role to play here. Anyway, the deer, pretty cool. Um, one of my favorite parts of the movie is the scene where all of the white Teslas have run aground. And <clears throat> I found it fascinating that they were saying like, hey, like we you, we use technology all the time. Let's pay attention to like how much we're relying on it and what could go wrong. Um, but I think the more interesting part of it was just like as a movie scene, it was the really the only thrilling part of the the, the whole movie uh, where their whole family's in the car and they're trying to like dodge these Teslas. Also, like why why didn't they just drive off the road and wait on the side of the road? Why were they trying to drive through traffic? Anyway, plot hole. But uh, or just like dumb movie characters being stupid. Um, anyway, that was really cool. Uh, flamingos show up. I think flamingos are kind of more in line with the whole nature thing and just like, oh, like nature gets weird, I guess. Things aren't 
it, it, something like that would be not normally cool, but now it's suddenly freaky and worrying. Um, you know, all these ideas are in the movie. And it's like, I, it's kind of exhausting watching movies that are not entertaining and are not um, providing like interesting characters, but I guess like want you to still derive value from it because then it's just like, I'm not in school. Give me something entertaining to watch, you know? Basically, I don't think this movie actually is successful, but the messages are there. And so that's what a podcast is for, to unpack whatever you see on a, on a, on a movie screen. So that's what I'm here to do. And so I guess I'll just keep chugging through these things. Um, gosh, what, what else is there? Uh, I guess like the, um, you know, the whole Civil War aspect of the movie was also, I guess, a, a fairly thrilling scene when Kevin Bacon's character and Mahershala Ali's character are basically at like a, they, they have like a, a standoff with guns and, and uh, Ethan Hawke's character is trying to calm the situation down. Um, again, like f- just on the nose stuff, like, hey, when things get tough, America goes back to being individualistic. And if that happens, then we're doomed and we have to keep each other in mind, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, pretty straightforward as a message. As a movie scene, yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, I almost wanted more bloodshed because it's like the tension was great, but the whole movie is like tension, tension, tension to really no release. It's a little bit, it would have been nice to have a little bit of a release as a viewer, but hey, I get it. I get what they're trying to do here. Trying not to give us that, that release instead, just build up the tension. Um, but that was, that was definitely a, probably one of the best scenes in the movie. I think, I think one, and shout out to my friend Brian who wrote this in the letterbox review. But one weird thing about the characters, which there are a lot of weird things about the characters. They're not like, they don't really feel like real people. They just kind of feel like things are happening to them and they're doing stuff and, and we're just watching them and we're not really attached to any of them. And maybe they're supposed to be at a distance, but I, I just found it like frustrating again, which is just, I guess, the key word for this movie. You know, it's weird that, like, there's a moment in this movie when we first meet Mahershala Ali's character with his daughter, and we're supposed to be suspicious of them, rightfully so, because they show up in the, in the middle of the night and say that this is their house with no ID, and they're they're acting really suspicious. The main characters, Julia Roberts' character and Ethan Hawke's character, ma- ma- mainly Julia Roberts' character, is, like, kind of suspicious slash, like, uh, you know, we're, we kind of think she might be racist because she's suspicious of these black people. But they are acting weird, and so we're also feeling the things that Julia Roberts is feeling. Like she's kind of the avatar for the audience in that in those moments. Turns out, like they're completely normal and good people, but they were just presented as really suspicious for the first half of the movie. It turns out Marshall Lee's not a bad guy. He just kind of understands what's actually happening in the world, but he didn't want to freak them out. But it's like. If you're going to make characters like start out that weird and suspicious, I want to understand like why they were acting that way in the first place. And that's not really ever explained. Like they, and they were just acting so weird. Like they, they, they said they tried to sneak around back before coming to the front door. And that's a really weird thing to do. Like, why would you say that to somebody who doesn't know who you are? So yeah, it's just a weird thing that I, I don't think works at all. Uh, for a movie character uh, of course there's there's some charming scenes with Mahershala Ali and Julia Roberts characters where they're sort of bonding it's, uh, I guess like there's some charm there but also you're at a distance with the characters so like I was just like this is weird like I don't I don't 
just like get on with the with the actual thrill ride of the movie i don't really care about what these characters are doing um so yeah that's you know the characters are weird alcohol is also a, a theme in this movie i think this is probably what the last thing i'll talk about with this but um alcohol plays a, a large role here the characters are like constantly drinking wine um and in the mornings are suffering from like some hangover-esque symptoms and then of course the son who gets bitten by the tick starts to lose his teeth in the final morning of the film and um there's a dichotomy there where like some mornings they're waking up and they are hungover and they're you know trying to treat those symptoms and then the next morning the the son is not hungover but like suffering like a medical abnormality and I, i guess what they're saying is like you know if you start to uh, self-medicate in situations like this with alcohol then like lines are blurred between uh getting through it and like impacting your health or something i i don't, I don't really get it but uh, i just thought it was notable that every character is drinking basically um i guess something to kind of look for the next time next time anyone watches this movie that's like all like the faux analysis i'll do on the film this movie is weird but i i do think it's almost like worth watching just to understand what the movie's trying to say it's a it's an obama picture and he's going to have a lot more movies coming out as executive producers certainly this is the most financially successful one that they've made but yeah i i don't think that this is is actually a successful thriller it has definitely some redeeming qualities but i think the um the sum of the parts is uh is probably greater than the whole there so i i i i guess like I think most people have probably seen this movie if you're listening to this. Um, let me know what you thought in the uh, question and answer section below on Spotify if you're listening on your phone. But otherwise, let's take a quick break and let's jump into David Fincher's The Killer. All right, we're talking about uh, David Fincher's the killer uh i've said the word david fincher like four times this podcast if you don't know who david fincher is movies that david fincher has directed um uh seven fight club gone girl the social network girl with the dragon tattoo uh mank um zodiac oh my gosh how did i miss zodiac he he is uh one of the best filmmakers alive one of the most influential filmmakers of the last 30 years um i think like of his movies I've seen, I've only, I think I've only seen maybe six of his films. I think like three of them I consider to be five-star masterpieces, uh, specifically Zodiac, The Social Network, and Seven are all just incredible movies for so many reasons. But he has a new movie out called The Killer. It was in theaters for a couple of weeks before uh, landing on Netflix, so I'm not sure if you could consider it a Netflix original, but it is uh, certainly somewhat, uh, I guess, like, distributed by Netflix. Um, it stars Michael Fassbender in the leading role as the killer. Uh, Michael Fassbender, one of my favorite actors, I've mentioned him on this podcast many times uh, for his role in the film Inglorious Bastards, where he showed up for like 20 minutes as a uh, British spy. But he he's a, uh, he's a fantastic actor. You might have seen him as Steve Jobs in the movie Steve Jobs, this year, he was in the sports comedy film Next Goal Wins, which I watched and uh, I found to be charming, but, you know, not incredible. Um, but he he is a uh, fantastic actor. And this is really like the Michael Fassbender show. Most of this film is him on screen and us listening to his internal monologue. Um, 
like I said at the beginning of this podcast, this is about thriller movies that are not normal thriller movies, and this is certainly in that category. The Killer is a uh, really a like drama almost. It's about the procedural aspects of what it takes to be a hitman. It is about uh, our main character who is unnamed, uh, but I guess the killer, um, and the way he goes about his job and his, uh, I guess, like opinions on what he does and his philosophies on life and on his career. And we sort of spend 15 minutes with him in the beginning of the film, and it starts off incredibly slow, where we hear him talk and talk and talk about how boring the life of a, a hitman is and how he uh, basically goes about his days and how he needs to uh, avoid empathy and be exacting and all of these these things and then at about 16 minutes into the film we see him botch uh, an assassination and accidentally kill uh, somebody else and miss his target pack up and leave town he goes home uh, because he suspects that because he's missed that, um, you know, he they might be trying to clean him up to cover their tracks. Sure enough, his girlfriend is on the verge of death, and he basically vows revenge on uh, the whole system because of what's happened. As the movie goes along, we, you know, it's kind of like framed as a standard revenge thriller. But as the movie goes along, I found it to be just increasingly more fascinating not because of what the plot of the movie was. The plot of the movie is actually like very standard. It's like it's a revenge thriller, so every single scene is basically him going after another person. I should, I should say every sequence is him going after another person that was involved somehow in the job and of uh, involved somehow in in the the uh, attempted murder of his girlfriend. So he you know first he kills like the actual guy who. Um, came and came into his house and and tried to kill his girlfriend then he goes after his former boss and his former boss's assistant uh then he goes after tilda swinton's character who's nicknamed the expert who i think actually is the one who came and did the actual job of of killing uh or trying to kill the girlfriend the best the best fight scene in the entire movie is him beating up this guy or fighting this guy um in the Dominican or Cuba or something like that. You know the scene I'm talking about if you've seen the movie. Uh, it's like the only real fight scene in the movie. And then, of course, at the very end, he goes and uh, meets the client, or I guess the person who requested the original uh, murder target to be murdered in the first place. And instead of killing him, he lets him go. All of this to say that like, the plot is the plot, but the most fascinating parts of this movie are when we see the protagonist go against his own ideologies. You know, he, he's repeating the same ideologies over and over in this film, and yet we see him go against his own word all the time. I think all of this goes to show that, like, this guy's system was broken by himself. He messed up, and he never messes up. And he otherwise, in his, in his life, he's so exacting and he's so perfect. But he messes up, and basically from that point on, he is kind of um, questioning everything that he does. And that part of the film is the most autobiographical part of the film. And what I mean by that is David Fincher is, as a director, known to be the most exacting, the most perfect guy in Hollywood. He will record something 80, 
90, 100 times. Uh, actors have told horror stories about being on his sets and just be, being exhausted by the 20-hour days that they end up having to work because he will record something over and over and over and over and over again. He is a perfectionist. And for him to make a film basically being like, hey, this guy's a perfectionist, but uh, he's not perfect. And it turns out whenever he goes against his own ideologies, it seems like he's actually um, being a better person. He's like better for it. You know, he, he says to avoid empathy, but then he shows empathy to um, his boss's assistant by breaking her neck and pushing her down the stairs to show that, um, you know, the death was quote unquote accidental so that she gets or her son gets life insurance money. Little, little stuff like that, where we are basically seeing him redeem himself in our eyes because he is going against his his own word. So in that sense, it's autobiographical and he's kind of poking fun at himself uh, as a director. Um, I also found the movie pretty funny at times. Sometimes the humor fell flat, no doubt. I think the humor is, a, is like generational in that sense. There's a lot of, I guess, like voiceover humor about um, the soundtrack, which is 100% The Smiths, a joke, or I guess like a band that I have no relationship to uh, as a person, so I just didn't understand any of that stuff. There's some cheeky bits of humor. Uh, I guess like his all of his aliases in the film, all the fake names he uses are all sitcom characters. Which, like, you know, just like some bits of, of humor. I think one part of the film that really was powerful to me was that we see him interacting with all sorts of like common companies and businesses in this film. Amazon, uh, RIP WeWork, but WeWork is heavily featured in this film. Um, like, there's a FedEx scene. There's just like a lot of like name brand, McDonald's, a lot of name brand stuff. And we, throughout all, all of these scenes, we see him using technology to both avoid human contact completely and literally be an assassin like he uses technology that is available to everybody to kill people and to get away with it without being seen and he's manipulating technology in very easy ways to get this done and i found that to be such an interesting and powerful commentary on the fact that there can be sociopaths around us day to day and technology uh, modern technology is basically like encouraging us to become more and more sociopathic in our lives. All that stuff worked really, really well for me. I found it to be like just incredibly, I guess, poignant and um, very applicable to 21st century life. And I think it's, uh, yeah, definitely like one of the, one of the stronger motifs that uh, David Fincher has used here. This movie is written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who most notably did the screenplay to Seven, one of David Fincher's earliest movies. And he's a fantastic writer. And I think like, there's a lot of there's a lot of writing here, no doubt. Um, a lot of a lot of dialogue here that we hear. Certain motifs that he's written in with all this technology and stuff works really well for me. Um, one of the most interesting scenes, or I guess, conversations that takes place in this movie is the conversation he has with uh, the character called the expert, which is played by Tilda Swinton, probably like the biggest name in this movie aside from Michael Fassbender. It's basically like Tilda Swinton talking for seven minutes and then her dying. But the conversation that they have is about a uh, basically a story that she tells where a man goes and tries to kill a bear and fails to kill the bear. And then the bear basically invites him back to the forest time and time again to be sodomized. And the third time, the bear basically says, you're not really out here for the hunting, are you? Which implies that the hunter likes getting screwed by the bear. 
and that is basically a commentary on the killer's character where he's both like an incredibly violent person and very exacting but he's also somebody who likes the you know the dirty parts of his job the dirty indignities of his job as this one article on decider.com says he basically like i guess like doesn't go for the most efficient ways to kill people and he despite wanting to be exacting and perfect he's not and it seems that he ends up actually liking that aspect of it which is you know the ending of the film is is a great example of that where he actually leaves the client alive for some moral reason that he's decided and then of course that scene ends with Tilda Swinton getting shot in the head and it's revealed that she was uh, actually planning on killing Fassbender because she was holding a knife in her hand really really good stuff i i i understand why people don't like this movie because it is not thrilling a lot of the time it is it feels it it reads like a drama you're you're watching a guy do stuff on on screen with the voiceover and the thrilling parts of it are like far and few between so i get why if you sat down to watch a movie called the killer and you were looking for a thriller that you'd be heavily disappointed by this film I think I knew that this wasn't going to be what I thought it was going to be going in. And about 45 minutes in, once I kind of started to, uh, I guess, like derive some value and some insight from what I was seeing, I was just more and more fascinated by what I what I watched. I like movies that uh, make you think. And I think the biggest difference between this and Leave the World Behind is that they both have things to say. But Leave the World Behind is like, hey, like the things that I want to say is the point of this film. And I think the killer is like, I'm not going to tell you what the point of the film is. The point of the film is you just watched an exacting killer uh, take revenge on people. And if you found that a bit boring, uh, that makes sense because the the whole job of being a killer is boring. But there's so much under the surface in the killer that I actually found myself wanting to reward the film for that. So... I would say that uh, of the two movies, The Killer is definitely the more successful film. Certainly, technically, it is. Technically, this movie is like off the charts. I mean, it is uh, edited by David Fincher's longtime editor, Kirk Baxter, who won back to back Oscars for The Social Network and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Cinematography by Eric Messerschmidt, who uh, was nominated for an award, uh, for an Oscar, excuse me, for Mank. Uh, Mank is. David Fincher's film that he made in 2021. I've yet to see it, but you can watch that on Netflix. Music is by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who uh, most notably won Oscars for both The Social Network and uh, Pixar's Soul. They are some of the best uh, musicians working today in Hollywood. And this score is like... You, you don't even remember that there is a score because it's it's really droning and it's like really kind of like pulsing. The, the most notable time that there's music, I think, is the fight scene in uh, Florida, I guess. Um, I said Cuba or something like that uh, earlier. It's it's Florida. He goes to um, St. Petersburg and finds uh, the brute. And during that fight scene between him and the brute, uh, <laughs> the, the, the music is just like off the charts. I think like technically this film is like really well made. Well, we might even see some nominations for it at the Oscars, but I think more so the reason I recommend it is just because there's a lot of really cool ideas in there about, I guess, floating through our modern life and how somebody like a killer like this is able to go around it and 
what this killer's philosophies are about what he does and whether he actually likes the the killing parts of it or not and whether he's really actually looking for redemption uh or he's just um i guess like what 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 his motivations are and trying to kind of like piece those together i'm not saying that it's like the deepest movie you'll ever watch but i just found it way more interesting than the other non-thriller that we talked about leave the world behind so that's all i'll say about the killer um david fincher is a incredible filmmaker this is definitely not in my like top five for him if i had to say but uh you know the more movies i watch by him the more i'm kind of like fascinated by what he what he has to say in his in his films that's the episode i hope you've enjoyed uh we're, we're gonna be doing more episodes in the coming days the films maestro and ferrari are gonna be featured in an episode relatively soon We'll do a Leo DiCaprio Hall of Fame episode in in January sometime. We're going to be talking about past lives. We're going to be talking about Oppenheimer. We're going to be talking about Killers of the Flower Moon. So, you know, stay tuned for coming episodes in the next month or so. Until then, thank you for listening. Hope you've enjoyed. And we'll see you next week on Video Village. Take care. Special thanks to my lovely girlfriend, Kuba Patel, for the podcast's artwork and my good friend Kevin Cow for the music that you're listening to now. You can find more of his music on Instagram at Wei Beats. Thanks, y'all.